Hello, everyone. Good morning. Wow, you guys are lively. This is my type A crowd. I love it. Can we pray while we get settled? Father, I pray for our time here. I pray that as we open your word, you'd be speaking, um, that as we would read what you have for us, and as we sit in First Peter this morning, that um, you would reshape our minds, that you would change some of the mental environments that we have, that you would make us more aware to your spirit, and that we would be more sensitive to the person and nature of Jesus, and that ultimately we would grow to love one another in this room and outside of this room and especially as Thanksgiving's coming. We're grateful for this time. Thank you for the ways in which you promise to speak. We love you. Amen. I am delighted to be here. My name is Chris Lash. I'm the Dean of University Ministries at Judson, and Michael is silly enough to let me speak here periodically. So I've been here about once a quarter, and if you hate that, tell Michael. Don't send me the email. won't do anything. Send Michael the email. Now, as we get started, I would like to show you a series of photos, a series of photos. So you can go ahead and turn your eyes to the screen. We have a handful of photos, and I want you to notice the way that the photographer is capturing nature in a bit of a different way. We're focusing on different things. These photos were all taken by a Tokyo-based photographer, and his name is Yoshiri Mitsuri, Mitsutani. And these are, this is a series that he gave to the magazine, The New Yorker, and he's showcasing a unique style of photography um, to capture the cultural practice of Shinrin-yoku. And we translate that from Japanese, it means forest bathing, forest bathing. And the premise of forest bathing is pretty simple. It's it's to go out and experience and walk around and enjoy nature, to absorb the sights, the smells, to walk around, to stop and observe, not to hike, not to go somewhere, not to specifically see any certain destination, but just to bathe in the forest. Now, to some, this may sound like a a regression to hippie hug-a-tree type day, Captain Planet, if I have my 90s people in here. But Japan noticed something really interesting. They noticed that there were epidemically high levels of mental unwellness and there were significant benefits, anecdotal at the time, there were significant benefits to just kind of being out in nature. And so, so much so that in 1982, Japan's forest agency created a national campaign to get people to go out into forests. And so this trend has actually made its way across the ocean into a number of urban cities where in cities around the United States, there are, there are clubs, rather large clubs, and what they do is they just go out into forests once a month and bathe in the forests. So, and it's more than just anecdotal evidence. Japan commissioned a study that went from 2004 to 2012 to examine the psychological and physical benefits of forest bathing, and their results were actually pretty staggering. Um, They found that those who spent time near trees showed a significant spike in the human natural killer cells, HK cells, 
And those are the cells that respond to viral infected cells and respond to tumor formation. According to these studies, this is due to the natural oils that trees emit. And being around them actually improves your immune system. And all of my suburban moms who are secretly selling essential oils, you know this. Being exposed to forest environments reduces blood pressure, anxiety, it reduces anger, and and it strengthens the immune system. And now, this has not gone unnoticed by American hospitals. American hospitals have noticed that this actually sees significant health improvements, and since hospitals are changing their systems from what was built in 1970s boomer boom, uh, they become dilapidated, and now they are revamping. And in the course of my research, I, found, I went down the rabbit hole of hospital architecture and hospital uh, room design and what it looks like in order to help people heal, and this is what's interesting. Hospitals are finding, hospitals have found that the very architecture of the building, what you look at, what's around you, either speeds up or slows down your healing. Notice, your environment speeds up or slows down your very healing. So much so that um, we're seeing hospitals shift to greener style decor. Pictures of landscapes. They create gardens on the premises. And they intentionally are rearranging the rooms and rearranging the outside of the hospital to create forests so that as you are healing, you can just look at a tree. And studies show that just being able to look at a tree fosters growth, fosters healing. Some hospitals have even found that plants in the room speed up healing and recovery. So here's the point. Why did it take you down this mental digression? Your environment matters. Your environment matters. Your healing and ongoing growth can be sped up or slowed down depending on the environment that you are in. Your environment doesn't change what you are specifically recovering from, but it does change how fast you recover. It changes how fast you recover. We are continuing um, our series in 1 Peter today, and so we've so far seen that Peter is writing to a bunch of Christians who are undergoing persecution, they're undergoing pain, they're undergoing suffering, and, and they're being pressed in by their own government, by their very neighbors, by their hometown, the people that they would have known for a very long time. And, and Peter, knowing what they were going through, knowing their suffering, knowing that their faith needed healing, and knowing that many in this area needed to be encouraged in their faith, Peter adjusts the environment for their healing. He begins to rearrange the mental landscape of their faith. He begins to adjust the mental environment for which they are, in which they are going through suffering and by readjusting it can perhaps begin healing. 
Because this whole suffering thing is absolutely crazy to them. It's, it's, it's baffling. Um, they've been doing good. They've been seeking the good of the city. They've been living as upstanding men and women and the people around. And yet at the same time, though they've been doing all of the right things, suffering, persecution, pain comes So, I mean, if you're somebody in that time, you can imagine, uh, and perhaps you don't even have to imagine, the questions that they would be asking themselves and each other and their pastors. Has God abandoned us? Have we done something wrong? Is he punishing us? Look what being good to our city has gotten us. Enough with this. Why, why shouldn't I just give up on this whole Jesus thing? It's not doing my family very much good. It's not doing my 401k very much good. It's not doing my property value very much good. Or, or why is this happening? Why would God allow this? And so here's what Peter knows. Peter knows what his church is going through. And so he decides to begin reframing their questions. He knows that they are in the midst of suffering. And as a good pastor, he's not telling them to stop asking questions because questions are fine. They are good. They are the way we grow. And so he's not telling them to stop asking questions and to stop asking and trust the Lord. No, he begins to rearrange the mental environment that they're in. He begins to place them around specific forests of truths so that they can begin absorbing what these truths have. He's putting them in a different mental environment so they can persevere in the face of suffering so their faith can heal, so that they can move forward, so that they can perhaps learn to trust again. And so here's what we'll see throughout our time this morning. Your mental game makes all the difference in suffering. Your mindset makes all the difference. Your perspective changes everything. Your issue, and I say this lovingly, your issue is not the suffering. Your issue is not the suffering, but the mental environment for your suffering. And you'd say, prove it. (sighs) I will. So let's jump in. Let's jump into what Peter is doing here. We'll start in 1 Peter 4. We're only going to cover two verses today. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. You can turn on, flip open, whatever you do, how you get your Bible. If it's an audio Bible, uh, turn that off. I don't know. All right, 1 Peter 4, 1 to 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer, but for human passions, but for the will of God. 
I, I find Peter pretty confusing quite often. Like, um, I studied uh, Greek uh, for a very long time, and routinely, Peter's the worst. He's just horrific. And so if I was, I mean, I am a college professor, and what I would do, if somebody turned this into me, I would have circled the entire thing in red, purple, blue, whatever, you know, would get their attention, and I would send it back to them and say, this is confusing, it's a run-on sentence, and no one has any idea what you're saying. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick apart the verse a little bit so that we can grasp what Peter's actually doing here, because this passage is made up of one command plus several reasons. So there's one command and several reasons. And and this is what he's telling us. He's telling us to arm yourselves. There's one imperative in this whole thing. It's to arm yourselves. With what? With the same way of thinking. And he says, with the mind of Christ, with the same thinking as Christ. So he says, what's he going to write to these People. He's going to say, you need to arm yourselves in the very same way that Christ did when he underwent suffering. Next, and then he says, why? Why is this the case? Because Christ is our example. That's how he starts the beginning of the verse. Because Christ is our example. Why? Uh, what's the second reason to arm ourselves? Um, secondly, he says, because When we suffer, we cease from sin. Now, my reformed crowd, this opens up a whole kind of theological questions about what we mean, what what he means when he says cease from sin. But luckily, Peter tells us in a way that doesn't quite clear everything up, but we understand what he's getting at. And he says, so what does it mean in order to cease from sin? What do we mean when we say we are going to cease from sin in this passage? And he goes on, he says, ceasing from sin means following God's will. And so in the passage after this, in the text after this, for the next several verses, he's going to contrast yet again in his book, because he's a Hebrew writer, he goes cyclically, he's going to contrast yet again following your own will versus following God's will. Following, and put differently in a way that a lot of us are familiar, following the fruit of the Spirit versus following the desires and the passions of our flesh is what he phrases it as. Now, there's something pretty curious about this phrase, because look, he says, arm yourselves because Christ is our example, because in so doing, you cease from sin, and to cease from sin means following God's will. So what I'm going to focus on is this arm yourself command, because this is the thing that the entire passage is structured around. It's the imperative of the text. And it's really interesting that Peter uses this phrase, arm yourselves. It conveys this understanding, and when we translate it into English, it still has this phrase because we use it a lot. Arm yourself, get yourself ready for battle. Make yourself ready so that when you meet that time, you are ready to go. You are, you are ready. You have to arm yourself so that you are ready. And what's funny about him saying arm yourselves is that if you know the gospel narratives, when Jesus is betrayed in the garden and, and they come, and the Roman soldiers come for him. Peter was very literally armed with a sword and he takes out his sword and cuts off a a centurion's ear. And like it's nothing, Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on. And I think that was Peter's moment to say, huh, I don't think this is what he means by arm yourself. And so Peter isn't talking here and he learned his lesson one of the few times he did 
I feel you, Peter. One of the few times Peter learns his lessons is when he goes, I don't think we're talking about weapons here. I think we're talking about something else. And so what does he mean? He means arm yourself with thinking like Christ. Because here's the point. When suffering comes, whether it's physical pain, whether it's disappointment with work, whether it's being socially ostracized, whether it's overt persecution, whether it's despair, whether it's losing loved ones, whether it's I can't go to another funeral this year. When you are touched by any manner of the fallenness of creation, when you come face to face with the reality that life is not as it should be, When you are leaving a season of suffering or you're looking into a potential season of suffering, Peter reminds us to arm ourselves. He tells people who are in the midst of suffering to arm yourselves. Why? So that when we suffer and when we will, it's guaranteed, we can suffer well that we can suffer well. By the way, this is your Christian heritage, suffering well. Now, it's interesting. Peter talks about how that we should suffer well, that we should arm ourselves, but he doesn't actually tell us how. And as I was researching for this message, I grew quite irritated at Peter, um, because I, he wasn't just spelling it out for us. He wasn't saying, arm yourselves in the way of Christ. And we go, cool, how? And he doesn't talk about it at all. He just kind of moves on and contrasts living in the passions of our flesh and living in the will of God. And I was growing increasingly frustrated. And so I just started listening because I was like, I must be missing something. So I just started listening to the book of Peter over and over and over again. And I would just listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. And that's when I found out he's actually been doing the groundwork for this command since the opening verse of this book. He's been subtly showing us what it means to arm ourselves since the opening verse. He's been teaching us. He has been rearranging the furniture of our minds. He's been putting us in a different room. He's been, he's been putting us around the environment that will grow us and that will heal us. And he hasn't been doing it overtly. He's been doing it pretty covertly this entire time. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is to look at four ways that Peter has been bringing us to a mind shift, bringing us to shift our mindset, bringing us to change the mental environment of our suffering. And now we're going to move through the course of this book because that's what Peter does. And so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to jump all the way back to 1 Peter 1 and take a look at what he says. How do we arm ourselves? How do we arm ourselves? What does this look like? Point number one, he tells them, y'all are not alone. He says, y'all are not alone. What's the mindset shift? Y'all are not alone. He says in 1 Peter 1, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. He names five different places that this is happening. Verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus, for, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So when it's our moment of suffering, when it's our moment of suffering, when it's finally arrived, we typically believe two lies. The first lie that we believe is that we are all alone and that this is happening to just me. Because when we feel pain, whether it's chronic pain, the loss of a loved one, we bear it uniquely. And so what we falsely believe is that it's just us suffering on our own. And the second twin lie is that God has forgotten us. Which, is, which I think is far worse than God punishing us. Like for me, apathy is worse than anger if that was true. Like if God was punishing us, that would be one thing. At least he'd be present and care. But, but for him to be absent. And so Peter confronts these twin lies at the opening verses of his book. He's reframing the problem. So he addresses it to elect exiles. So when he says elect, Michael already taught on this, but when he says elect, he says they are chosen by God. It's not a mistake. He uses this word that they are chosen by God. And because they are chosen by God, what do we know with Israel? He never forgets Israel. He loves his people. He cares about his people. He has never removed himself from them completely. He is on a salvation path with Israel. So they are chosen by God. They are remembered by him. They are drawn towards him. And then when he says exiles, they are elect exiles, he's reminding them this is not their home. Yes, your neighbors have turned on you. Yes, things are going wrong, incredibly wrong in your life. But you are not of this world. And if I was to apply it here for us, for us to be elect exiles, very plainly, it means that we are not locked in a culture war. This is a hard word for a lot of Christians to hear. We are not locked in a culture war. Because that implies it's good versus evil and we are battling and it's this dualistic thing and one will triumph over the other and boy, I hope it's us. We are, we are not locked in a culture war. It is not right versus left. It's not up versus down. It's not right versus wrong. We are elect exiles. This is not our home. So we shouldn't be surprised when it doesn't feel like our home. We often get locked in the culture war when we forget that God is remaking all things. And so he reminds them they are elect exiles. And this is incredible encouragement, incredible hope. Because it means that God is actually remaking. He's not only calling, but he's remaking and that he's actually taking them somewhere and he is actually with them. The next thing that Peter does is he puts the name of a bunch of places. Uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. 
And that like sounds very foreign to us, but if I was to say to those who are suffering in Bartlett, Elgin, Chicago, Aurora, if I was to say that you are suffering in those areas, you know what that would do? Immediately you'd go, we're not alone. Not that I want others to share in my suffering, but it's really encouraging to know that I'm not the only one. And Peter put it intentionally at the top here so they would know they're not alone in their suffering. There are other Christians undergoing the same thing. And so it might not be that God's mad at them or that God's punishing them, but it might be a way that they are living out their calling as elect exiles. Next, he reminds them that God is with them. And so what's interesting is the Trinity shows up in the opening verses of this entire book. He says, for the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. So God knows the Spirit is drawing you towards himself and Jesus is helping you to obey. Can you imagine in the middle of suffering, when you want to give up, when you think that you're alone and to hear that not only are there Christians who are with you, but that God himself is with you? It's imperative for them to grasp that they are not alone, that God himself has not abandoned them and the church has not forgotten them. So listen, God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned you. A lot of you walk into this space with a lot of wounds that need healing, with a lot of feelings of isolation and loneliness. God's not abandoned you. He never has abandoned his people. Not once, not ever. So what would it look like for you to suffer in silence no longer? What would it look like for you to open up at your next CG meeting? What would it look like for you to get prayer after the service? What would it look like for you to share these things with the Lord? Yeah, 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 but he doesn't like when I'm angry. No, trust me, God can handle it. There's an entire book called the Psalms that's basically one giant lament. Two-thirds of it is lament, which is just basically yelling at God and God going, I can take it, I can take it, I can take it, I can take it. Or if you read Jeremiah, Jeremiah is basically yelling at God the entire time because he's absolutely distraught and God can go, I can take it, I can take it, I can take it, I can take it. There's a book that um, every time I see that somebody's passed on Facebook or or I have friends that are going through hard times or I'm walking through hard times, there's one book that actually comes to my mind more than any others. It's a book titled Lament for a Son by Nicholas Wolterstorff. And if anybody's going through anything, I would highly, highly, highly recommend that book. He's a philosopher, I believe, at Calvin College at the time, at least. And he lost his son when his son was 30 years old in a climbing accident. And one of the most profound things in this book, and it happens around page 63, it's, it's, a, um, it's a journal that he kept and he was showing his friends the journal that he was keeping and his friends finally said, Nicholas, you need to publish this journal. You need to put it out there because it's going to help people and this is what's the profound thing. Someone comes up to Nicholas and says, um, are you now, or I think it's his wife, someone goes up to his wife and says, are you now at peace with your son's death? And Nicholas goes, are you kidding me? At peace, at shalom, 
at the unity and harmony of all things. Do I feel at harmony and at peace with all things when God said in creation, it is good and there was shalom over the earth? Do I feel that? No. I will never be at peace. But this is what I know, that Christ joins me on the mourner's bench. That Christ joins even me on the mourner's bench. Y'all are not alone. Arm yourself, number two. Remember the future. Remember the future. We'll skip ahead to 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Remember the future. Peter writes, therefore, Preparing your minds for action. That connects to our verse, right? Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is perpetually sitting in this space of the already, not yet. Um, you, some of you have questions that will never be resolved in your faith. And that's because oftentimes the Bible never resolves them. The very Bible sits in this tension of the already and not yet, of what I see now and what is to come. And so Peter's admonition to us, what he's been forming us throughout the course of this book is to remember our future. Because friend, this is temporary. I was just talking to my counselor recently talking about what would his advice be, which by the way, I would highly recommend everyone go see the counselor. It's fantastic. You literally pay someone to listen to your problems and then you don't have to deal with the awkwardness later. They legally cannot acknowledge you in a party. This is fantastic. Like it's, it's awesome. Okay. He could be here. You'd have no idea. He can't even say hi. He's not. But I, I was asking him, what, what would you say to someone who's experiencing intense depression and self-harm and thoughts of suicide? And he goes, to be honest, what I, what I tell counselees most often is that this is temporary. This is not forever. This feeling is not your future. This feeling is not forever. No matter how low and desperate you feel, this feeling is not forever. And so I don't want to do all of the work to try and put hope in their lives yet, but I can just do the small seeds of saying this is not permanent. The suffering that you're going through matters. It's significant. It requires grieving. We're not doing some weird spiritual bypassing where we're saying, yep, God works all things to the good. I'm not going to feel anything. I'm just going to shove it down inside. No. But he reminds us this is not forever. He says, remember the future. And what is the future? The future is that one day I'll be surrounded by all the friends I've lost. One day we'll be surrounded by family that has departed. We'll be surrounded by the saints that have gone faithfully before us and we'll sit around the marriage supper of the lamb and we will drink wine, yes, wine, and we will enjoy a meal and we will celebrate and laugh. We will enjoy one another and we will laugh, laugh, laugh. That's our future. In community, with God himself. Remember the future. Arm yourself, number three. This is a weird one, but it's rooted in neuroscience and Peter didn't even know it. 
Arm yourself, number three. He says, look to bless. He says, look to bless. Let's fast forward to 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For to even this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your heartache, in the midst of your isolation and loneliness, what does this text encourage us? Peter's been encouraging us all along to look to bless. Bless both your brothers and sisters, but sometimes that can be easy, but bless your enemies even so. Now, I don't have time to go into the neuroscience of gratitude and blessing, uh, but it's there, I swear. But bottom line, what it says is you begin to rewire your mind if you keep a gratitude journal. It actually helps with pain management and it helps change your perspective and that changes the healing in your very body. And if you actually go to bless, there was a study done, I guess I'll get into it. There was a study done um, where they gave participants $20 to spend on themselves or $5 to give to somebody else. And those who actually gave that $5 to somebody else reported a higher level level of satisfaction, life satisfaction that lasted for about a month by blessing others. So it's, it's like the Bible has been telling us all along. That's fine. I read it in a study. But the thing I want to focus on in this verse specifically is a tender heart. To become a tender heart. Isn't it really easy in suffering to callous our heart? Because it's harder to have hopes that are dashed than it is just to harden your own heart. And yet, Peter tells us to have a tender heart. I mean, you've seen it enough. We probably talk about it enough here. I know I talk about it with my students. What would this world be like what would this city be like? What would your neighborhood, your school, your workplace be like if you had a tender heart? If you didn't let circumstances harden your heart because you're not subject to your circumstances because you're remembering your future. If you actually had a tender heart. Yeah, my workplace won't let that happen. It's a bunch of you know tough men and they can't do that. That's part of the radical nature and grace of Jesus. Have a tender heart. Jesus washed Judas's feet. You think that was a weird cultural moment? Yep. Have a tender heart. Look to bless with the world going absolutely bananas. What would it mean for us to have a tender heart? How do we bless others? How do we cultivate this tender heart? I think it's by looking to the first two things that Peter has showed us so far. We are not alone. 
and that we remember our future. We are not alone and we remember our future, therefore we can look to bless others. Okay. Arm yourself, number four. The fourth way to arm yourself. God did it too. God did it too. First Peter three eighteen. This is the passage right before the one that we are reading. First Peter three eighteen. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ also suffered. I don't know if you saw this clip. It was a fascinating clip between the preeminent theologian, Stephen Colbert, um, who is a, some of you have seen his stuff, you know, he's got some good books. No, Um, he's a late night talk show host and one of the smarter ones. And he is a practicing Catholic. And he sat down with Anderson Cooper of, uh, I believe CNN, not too long ago. I think that's where he's at. Anyway, um, Anderson Cooper and Anderson Cooper was, um, asking him questions about his childhood, his background. And, and Stephen Colbert shared that he lost his dad and brothers, um, to a terrible accident and how it like radically reshaped. And Anderson Cooper asks him a series of questions. You actually see Anderson and Cooper get choked up and start crying as he asks Stephen about how he could suffer. Like, how could a good God allow suffering? And Stephen looked at him and he said, the cross of Jesus shows me that God did it too. That God did it too. Peter's been pointing this out time and time again over the course of his book. He's been showing that Jesus suffered, Christ himself suffered for sins on the cross. And it wasn't just the cross, it was over the course of his lifetime. It wasn't just a momentary second, it was his whole life was suffering because he took sinful human flesh into himself. And so whenever suffering comes up, whenever that question comes up, it is one of the most sought after questions as far as apologetics. How do we speak about our faith? Why would a good God allow suffering? It's a good question, it's an important question, but what I've noticed is I've grown incredibly frustrated by the fact that we can philosophize, we can have philosophy and theology all we want. We can have all of the nice, logical, intellectual arguments all we want, but the Bible doesn't go there. The Bible fundamentally doesn't go there. It's okay to ask the questions. Why would you allow suffering, God? Why would my finances be like this? Why would I lose my job? Why would you allow me to be ostracized with my friend group or at work? I thought you were looking over me. Why would you allow my kids to go and dabble into this? Why would you allow self-harm and suicide? Why can't I rid this from my body? Why would you allow all this pain? They're good, important questions, and God never punishes Job for asking them. The problem is that we think the why question is the most important question. The truth is, if we are honest with ourselves, that's not the real question that we're asking. There's a question behind the question. 
we're asking the why question to evaluate these deeper questions. God, do you care? God, do you see me? Are you near to me? God, do you love me or are you just kind of... God, where are you in this? And no matter what, these are actually the questions that we need answered. The why question is a fantastic and a helpful, and I'm here for apologetics, sure. It's a good intellectual exercise, but these are the real soul questions that the Spirit needs to speak to. And the infuriating thing is that Peter and no other biblical writer addresses the why question. It, it's a mystery. We can affirm different things about God, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he allows and permits and, and all this stuff. We can talk about it, but the bottom line is the Bible doesn't give an answer to the question. It just says, yes, there's suffering and yes, God is good. How does that coexist? I don't know, but I know that that's what that is. You want to know why? Look to Jesus. So if you were to ask me why there's loss, why there's suffering, why there's pain, the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. I know it has something to do with Genesis 3, and I know it's going to be fully addressed in Revelation 22. That's what I know. I'm not burying my head in the intellectual sand. I'm acknowledging where the Bible doesn't address the question. Now we can, it's a good question. What we see in the cross, what we see in Jesus is that God did it too. God suffered too. So how did God deal with suffering? He dealt with suffering by coming to earth, taking on the human flesh and dealing with it in his own person. So the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the very people that we saw in the beginning of this book, they were the ones that dealt with suffering. And they were the ones that had the power to experience suffering to its fullest extent. That's what C.S. Lewis addresses. To the fullest extent, suffering, temptation, sin, and death. They felt it to the fullest extent. Jesus knows what it means to lose a friend they took it in themselves and they sanctified it meaning they made it whole and Jesus will come back God did it too so what so what y'all do so what's here I brought some so what does this mean how do we Translate this from here in this moment into our Monday. Peter's been changing the mental environment and changing the mental environment and our disposition towards suffering changes everything. can actually encourage you to heal or it can uh, keep you in the space that you're in. You can grow bitter or you can grow better. I can keep going on these things, but the, the environment, your mental environment matters. So what are some ways that you can invite others into your grieving? What are some ways that you can join someone else? And I'm uncomfortable is not a good enough reason to not. Because y'all are not alone. And that means you might have to do the hard work of learning how to just sit with people on the mourner's bench and not provide answers, but just be present. 
the next thing I'd encourage you to do is to be honest with God. Not once in this entire book about suffering and about how to live well suffering does Peter say, shut up. In fact, he does the opposite. He tells you to pray. He tells you to be present. He tells you to offer those things to the Lord. So speak with God. Give him your whys. Give him your how could you's. Give him your I feel alones. Give him everything. Speak with him about it. Yeah, what will that fix? Trust me, it actually changes a lot when you believe that God could be listening. But I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Tell him that. I'd encourage you to take seriously your mental environment. The goal is to have this change before you walk into suffering, but notice that Peter's writing, to, writing it to people who are in the middle of suffering, and sometimes that's when we begin to learn about who he is. Forest bathing may sound incredibly silly. It may be like one of those weird things that people do in the city. But there's something to how the environment speeds up or slows down our healing. There's something to the environment changing the way that we look at our pain, the way we look at our recovery. There's something to rearranging our mental environment for suffering. Can I pray for you? Spirit, we acknowledge that the only way, the only way that we can begin to rearrange some of our mental environment is to recognize the things that you've already been doing in us. So Spirit, I pray that you'd be calling out these prayers, that you'd be drawing us into community, that you'd be having us see with fresh eyes the stuff that you've already been putting and placing in us. And Spirit, I pray for the power to persevere in the midst of suffering, the power to see our environment differently. I pray that you'd show us Jesus afresh and that you would help us to arm ourselves by showing us that we're not alone, by showing us the future, by reminding us of these truths, by showing us that you did it too. We love you. It's in Christ and we pray. Amen.